Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The top political story of the week continues to be the impeachment inquiry and the president's call with Ukraine. It's a fast developing story. And as this impeachment inquiry continues to play out, we could be in for an unprecedented scenario. President Trump could be impeached in the House, acquitted in the Senate, and then reelected in 2020. Congress would have nowhere to go in the event of another scandal. It might just be politically impossible. The White House, for their part, has also said that they will not cooperate in any way with a Democratic investigation. For more on this, we spoke to David Nather, managing editor at Axios, and we start off by talking about this impeachment inquiry. This is a situation that's unlike any we've ever faced with a presidential impeachment. We've never had a president who has been impeached or nearly impeached before who might be in a position to win re-election after all that has happened. And yet that's what we're facing right now because President Trump is still in his first term. So it really is a situation where if the Democrats move forward with impeachment now and all signs certainly suggest that they're going to, they would be using the ultimate congressional weapon against President Trump now, which means if it fails to remove him from office, which it almost certainly will, a Republican Senate is not going to vote to convict him and remove him from office. Then what happens if President Trump is able to mobilize his own supporters and say, you know, look at this unfair process. They've been after me from day one. They've thrown everything at me that they've got. Teach them a lesson. And he rides that to re-election. I don't think anybody can tell you today whether that is the most likely scenario, but it's certainly a possible scenario. And if that happens, where do the Democrats go from there in a second term? What would Congress do if there's another scandal and they want to go after Trump again? What would they do? Would they impeach him again? Could you even do that? I asked around to legal and political experts, and the answer was technically yes. Congress can impeach a president again, all over again, if they wanted to. Politically, no, they would never want to go through that again. And obviously, there's a whole host of things that would need to happen again. Let's say the president does get reelected. There would need to be another scandal that rises to the level of an impeachable offense to even try to go through this process again. But as you're saying, politically, though, I mean, the Democrats will have exhausted all that political power if it doesn't happen this first time around. Exactly. And think about what it would mean if President Trump comes back from this and gets reelected, he would be able to say, look, the voters have vetted me again and they want me back in office. So you guys have nothing to say about it. Republicans would certainly be even less likely to turn against the president than, than they are now. They would completely fall in line. And as for Democrats, they might be seething and angry and wanting to try something else to hold the president accountable, as they said. But where do you go after impeachment? There's just nothing else you can do except multiple impeachments, which just seems ridiculous. Right. Let's talk about the strategy of the White House right now. A lot of people saying there is no strategy or a replay of the strategy against the Mueller investigation, you know, kind of delegitimize the whole thing. Just say it's a Democratic ploy because they're unhappy about the election. There was a recent Fox News poll that shows the majority there, 51 percent, very slim. They say they want President Trump impeached and removed from office. And President Trump right away in the same vein of delegitimizing all this stuff said, oh, these Fox News polls suck or the pollsters suck. Right. The same thing with this new investigation. This is an extension of all that. How effective is that? 
For the first time, you're starting to see polls suggest that a very slight majority of the public favors impeachment. And that's a place that we have not been at all up until now. So we know that the White House is at least somewhat worried about the poll numbers. They don't necessarily believe what some of the polls have been saying about Republican support. They still think it's pretty rock solid, but the overall direction is not good news for them at all. David Nather, Managing Editor at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Another big story this week affecting hundreds of thousands of Californians are these planned power outages by PG&E in an attempt to avoid wildfires sparked by wind-damaged electrical equipment. Last year's campfire in California was set off by PG&E equipment, and it destroyed the town of Paradise, killing 86 people. We spoke to Matt Simon, science writer at Wired, for all the conditions that got us here. The central problem in California is that around this time of year, you get the seasonal winds that whip through from the northeast uh, toward the coast. And what those do is they drop in elevation. They scour along these mountains and funnel into valleys and pick up speed. As they drop in elevation, they dry out and warm. So as this wind is rushing over the vegetation, it is sucking what little hydration that vegetation has this time of year, considering that California just doesn't get that much rain um, by now. And indeed, with climate change, you're seeing rainfall being pushed farther into the winter. And what forecasters started seeing about a week ago was that the conditions were being set up perfectly this week for that. So in reaction, because PG&E has sparked so many deadly fires in the past couple of years, they decided, okay, well, we're just going to cut power to, as you say, a staggering 800,000 customers, potentially. Tell us about some of the potential dangers that this poses. Obviously, everybody relies on electricity for quite a number of things, but shutting down power to entire counties like this poses a risk in and of itself. A lot of these mountain towns in California are communities of retirees uh, that are living on fixed incomes. They might have limited mobility. And in fact, that was the problem in paradise. A lot of people couldn't escape because they didn't have mobility or the means to get out of town. Now, what you're seeing when you're shutting down power to this many people is that a lot of us rely on medical devices that have to be electrified in order to oftentimes keep us alive. PG&E is giving people as much warning as they can here, but people need to make arrangements if they are reliant on these medical devices. And it gets even more subtle and nuanced when you think about, well, in the case of a wildfire, if it's not PG&E sparking it, if all of their equipment is de-electrified and it sparks some other way, and a wildfire is approaching your house, your car is in the garage and your garage door is shut and it's an electric opener, you're not able to get your car out. So one of the things is in preparation for these sorts of things, you have to open your garage. So it's just there's these really interesting and quite problematic issues that pop up that you wouldn't necessarily think of. And again, this is very much a last resort for PG&E. They don't want to do this because as a power company, they are mandated to provide power for exactly these reasons. Is there any other recourse that some of these power companies have to help with this other than shutting down the power? The preparatory work is extremely important. Clearing brush around electrical equipment is a big one. But given the fact that we have hundreds of thousands of miles of electrical wiring crisscrossed throughout the state, it's going to take a lot of money for utilities like PG&E to go out there and check them all and to clear all that brush. One 
potential solution is to start burying all these lines, but that is in of itself extremely expensive. Right. And the problem in California is that much of the ground is pure rock and you can't just drill into that to any small expense. Farther out, some towns are starting to look at this idea of a microgrid, which is them using their own solar power and batteries to sort of divorce themselves from the larger grid. So in the event of these shutoffs, they won't be as effective as they would be. And a bunch of local leaders say these power outages prove how far the state has fallen behind in efforts to prevent these wildfires. We do need to invest in vegetation management and update the energy grids and hope that that helps. But beyond that, I mean, it is a tough situation with the way California's weather is so crazy right now. I mean, it really is kind of a fire season year round. Do we know how long it would take to restore power once the weather gets a little bit better, once the wind dies down a bit? How quickly can these services be restored? When the power companies decide to bring the power back online, they have to go out and inspect every inch of electrical wiring that had been shut down to make sure that the winds hadn't jostled it, knocked it loose. And if you turn on the power, then you spark a fire that way. So they're saying certainly up to five days. And the issue with an antiquated grid like we have now is that they're shutting down a lot more communities than they'd be because if you are in the middle of a community that's way out there that needs to have its power shut down, your power on the way there has to be shut down too. So then you have to have the utility come back and inspect all those lines as well. It's a total mess. The grid is just so old and antiquated. And again, the solution here is going to be in the future as battery prices come down and as solar panel prices come down, this move to microgrids where communities are more in control of their own power generation and storage. Matt Simon, science writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for having me. This week, we also learned that the FBI has now confirmed that Samuel Little is the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. Little has confessed to 93 murders. FBI crime analysts believe that all of his confessions are credible, and law enforcement has been able to verify 50 of these confessions. One of the interesting parts of this whole story is how many details Little remembers of his victims, names, dates, locations. Little has even sketched the faces of many of those victims. Now the FBI is looking for help from the public in matching the remaining unconfirmed confessions. For more on this story, we spoke to Christine Palazzolo, crime analyst with the FBI's Violent Crime Apprehension Program, and Angela Williamson, DOJ VICAP liaison, to talk more about Samuel Little. Well, all of the confirmations are made by the state and local investigating agencies. The FBI is kind of just coordinating a lot of it, but we're leaving it to the individual agencies to make that final determination. And then we're also assisting them in terms of identifying case matches back to Little's confessions. You know, we have 93 confessions that he's made, a lot of really specific detail that he's given, but in terms of precise dates and locations or jurisdictions, it's not as <laughs> detailed, uh, it's not as precise. So we're trying to assist those agencies in terms of searching what files and databases we have access to to help direct them to a particular case for them to pull and then research it to see if additional details match up with Little's confession. And that's been one of the most interesting things about this case in particular is the amount of detail that Samuel Little is providing now. Obviously, some of the dates might be a little shaky, but other things, the memory recollection that he has 
of all these murders is pretty astounding. He really goes into detail about certain scenes. He draws, he sketches the victims that he has. There's numerous sketches that the FBI has now that he's made. And this has been one of the most interesting parts is just how clearly he does remember a lot of this. He really has, I mean, the generic term is a photographic memory, but that's what we want the public to realize. You know, he may be off on the date of when he killed these women, but the details is what he's always spot on with. And when you're looking at the drawings, okay, they're not a fabulous work of art, but they're not that bad. But there's always something in the drawings that is very unique to that individual. And the cases that are matched where he's done drawings, there's a feature in those drawings that matches that individual in their life perfectly. And so that's what we want the public to think about. The little details he mentions, things he knew about their lives before he took them. That's really what is critical and what we know him to be really accurate with. What we found in a lot of the cases that we've confirmed, he was seen in the, when we find the case file, there's a witness statement describing him down to when he had a gold tooth, down to when he had a cast on, um, really specific details. So we're hoping that, you know, someone may be missing their friend from, say, 1979, and they remember her hanging out with this guy. And so that is, again, why we put all the mug shots out, not, not to show this collage of little, but to show what he looked like at each time when these women went missing and disappeared. And so we're hoping that, you know, the public can take a look at that and maybe they'll recognize him. And that's where the FBI is right now. They're asking for the public's help in matching some remaining unconfirmed confessions. And in your latest release, you paired a bunch of interviews that Samuel Little was doing with investigators and the drawings that he was making. Tell us a little bit about those interviews and those drawings specifically. So those confessions specifically, the reason that we're spotlighting those five is because those are five that we have done a lot of outreach on. We have searched exhaustively, again, through what databases we have access to, and those individual agencies have done exhaustive searches as well. And for what we believe to be one or multiple reasons in terms of either the victim was never reported missing, the body was never found, or the death was never ruled a homicide. For one or some combination of those reasons, we think that that is why we have been unable to find a case match back to those confessions. So we have tried to provide as much as we can out to the public, again, from the drawings to little talking about the victim to details of the confession that he's given, especially details about that individual victim, background information, what she was wearing or last eight or if she had family that he knew about to try to jog somebody's memory so that if this lines up with a loved one or an associate or a neighbor that they remember either going missing or being killed or maybe even dying under somewhat suspicious circumstances. If there's anything that matches back to that confession, that's what we need to hear about. And you guys are looking at these videos while the investigators are asking him these questions. Give us your sense of Samuel Little in his current state right now. His health is failing him, and he's at this point where he's just speaking very broadly about everything that's happened in great detail. And you look at some of these videos that you guys released, and he's almost happy or excited to tell these stories. What is your sense of, of watching him over all these hours of interviews? He is excited, and it's hard to say that, and it's hard to communicate that to the public, but he's extremely cooperative, and talking about the cases almost re-energizes him. 
And again, that's a hard thing to say, but it's the reality that we deal with. From our perspective, his confessions are 100% credible. We know that. We believe that. The details he's giving, he really is reliving what he did decades ago. He's in that moment. He traveled back and he's just reliving it. We don't question his motive. We don't really ponder it too much. Our objective is to find these victims and to give their loved ones answers. It is eerily creepy. The Texas Ranger who's doing a lot of these interviews at one point in an interview said, you ask him a question about one of the victims and he kind of starts scratching his face or he looks up you know, at the ceiling and almost remembering kind of a Rolodex of the victims that he has. And when he nails the one that he's really thinking of, then he goes into all of the, the details there. It's eerie to watch when he does those things. It's really stunning the level of recall he has and it almost to the point of being unbelievable, but that's the most impressive thing is that all of those little details that he's given us when we have found a case matching up to his confession, all of those details line up. He is spot on with that. So even some things that sound incredible, like I said, a last meal that the victim ate, he can tell you exactly what she sat down and ate just a few hours before he killed her. So even though it's hard to believe he is 100% credible with all of the things that he's been giving that he's never knowingly misled us. We've always said he's not great about dates and specific locations. He can give us a city he was in, but if he says he drove out of town before he dumped the body, it's not absolute exactly where he was, which causes some difficulty. But other than that, the details in terms of their interaction, it's always spot on. All the information that the FBI has released, these videos, the sketches of the victims, there's also kind of a timeline of Samuel Little through the years and all the various points that he's had been arrested or came across through under law enforcement's uh, supervision there. And you really just see him kind of grow up through the years. How did he evade being nailed for one of these murders for so long? He would literally kill someone and he'd be gone the next day. And he was very particular about who we chose. A lot of the women, the victims, lived high-risk lifestyles, unfortunately. And then, as Christy said before, some of their murders weren't even called murders. They were misclassified as overdoses or undetermined. But again, he was just so highly mobile that he was just gone. So how could anyone connect the dots? Right. It was almost an impossible task. A lot of his homicides were prior to the advent of DNA. He was pretty evidence conscious in terms of what he left behind and what he was careful not to leave behind. So there wasn't a whole lot to tie him to it. And even in some of the case reports that we found that have been matches back to his confessions, a man fitting his description is described or sometimes even a name. They have the name Samuel or Sam or some variation of that. But because, like Angela said, he was so mobile and was in one town and gone the next day, even if they had that name, they had nothing else to go on. So there was never any person to target, to identify, to follow up an interview or anything else. He was just gone. If anybody has any information that could help to confirm any of Samuel Little's other murders, you can contact the FBI with tips at 1-800-CALL-FBI or visit tips.fbi.gov. Christy Palazzolo, FBI VICAP crime analyst, and Angela Williamson, DOJ VICAP liaison. Thank you both very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for getting the story out there. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.